You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are here in our first week, Herds, of doing our taxes for the year, discussing Agatha Christie's The ABC Murders. Yeah, we're going to be tackling, and by we, I mean me. I'm, I'm solving it this week. Tackling a Hercule Poirot classic story. There was a story that I believe is a little bit towards the, the end of his run, but it's an ambitious mystery. And the book itself kind of calls that out to how this is the biggest case that Poirot has ever been on. It's very clear that with all the mentions of retirement and also Poirot, you know, foreshadowing his own death yeah, in chapter I, three. Well, I was curious about that because I I mean, I hadn't really read much about this book and, and I haven't read Curtain is the final novel. Yes, which I think was published posthumously. There's some talk about how Poirot is going to, jo- jokingly, of course, he's going to solve his own death one yes, day. Yes, they even <laughs> say it should but, be put into a book. Yeah, uh, by, by Hastings, presumably. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very silly, but also I'm really enjoying that kind of, we're far enough into the Poirot narrative that we can we can poke fun at his tropes. There's even a point at which Hastings says, if I had to pick one thing that I remembered from the ABC murders case, it would be conferences. Yes, there are lots of conferences. But before we get too far into this, I did want to talk about why we're covering this novel today. Yeah, Hurts, sure. Which is that it was one of a few novels of the golden age that was when serialized published as a competition for readers to enter. Oh, interesting. I'll link on the podcast the She Done It episode about this particular trend. But in 1935, when this was being serialized, it was novelized in 1936, readers were invited to send in their solutions. One person got exactly everything right. Oh my goodness. And apparently that person, according to Carolyn, was the outlier, but you know, given we'd just been talking about who shot Mr. Burns and the competition they ran for that. I thought this was a, a fun way to file our taxes for well, the it's, year. I mean, it's nice seeing a murder mystery competition that goes right, <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're not arbitrarily picking contestants from the first thousand entries and ignoring people who actually got it right, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, the ABC murders is a really interesting one because unlike your usual Poirot novel where we are set up with a very distinct functioning murder and a collection of suspects in the ABC murders, we sort of have to collect suspects as we go because the murders are framed as a serial killing from this character who signs letters to Poirot as ABC. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. My character list is very strange because not, not only is there just a lot of characters, but also I've got like six characters as being important or related to the mystery for the first murder. I've got four for the second murder and only one for the third murder. I have the name of the victim. I guess we haven't really seen like the crime scene yet, but it, it, I don't know what the case may be here. Maybe it's my attention span dwindling as, as I get further into the book. But <laughs> I, I suspect it's that, you know, there's there's a varying number of, of characters that we need to pay attention to from one murder to the next. Yeah, because it seems like the core question that Christie is sort of wrangling with in this story comes back to that discussion between Poirot and Hastings where they're talking about their ideal crime. Through that conversation, you can sort of see that the core tension in the mystery of this book is that we have a serial killer committing all of these crimes, but Poirot is in that scene sort of saying, no, there still must be a human element to this. So your challenge as a reader is pretty explicitly to figure out how it isn't a serial killer and where the humanity seeps through the cracks. Yeah, I mean, look, we're only a third of the way through. I can't say I've cracked everything yet, but there has to be a, a story. There's lots of details about like, 
you know, this character lost a family member during the war. And this character is, there's lots of emphasis put on the fact that there are characters who are foreigners as well, because this is not just a serial killing, quote unquote. It's also a challenge directed at Poirot because he's getting these letters before each of the murders. Yeah. So it's got to have something to do with him. Right. Yes. Like if he's being directly challenged, there must be a connection to him. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing that's fun about it is all of those conferences mean that we do get a lot of characterization. But the yeah. sort of question is, is how does the characterization of well, these broader suspects yeah. matter to I mean, the core case? Because there's, there's lots of I, I will say there's lots of mirroring going on, yes. which I think is interesting. There's lots of comments about how characters don't look like how they used to a long time ago, which is obviously like setting up maybe this character isn't who they say they are, or maybe this character could stand in for another character, that sort of thing. There's two sisters that I think have something similar going on. And then the way that Megan Bernard, the sister of the victim, the second victim, is kind of opposite to to Donald Frazier, who is an ab- abusive boyfriend, who, again, is a, is a parallel to Mr. Asher. Yeah. There's all these little parallels and mirrors that Christie has set up, and they're clearly, you know, it's for me to recognize as the reader the patterns in the book and try to orchestrate something. Yeah, and there's also this big line that's clearly because we don't have a core suspect or set of suspects in the case, we're very much dealing with the peripheral characters in the victims' lives, it seems, Mm. of what would actually drive someone to kill them. So, for example, Franz Asher and the abusive boyfriend, you know, Franz has threatened to kill his wife many times, but it's sort of played off in a weird way as like, oh, that's just his German humor. It's so interesting, (laughs) their relationship, because like, uh, and we only really have the word of Mr. Asher, who is out partying all night with his his men friends. All of (laughs) whom the cops say will, uh, no no point getting them to testify, right? None of them, none of their words can can be verified, but he says, oh, that was just a game. And when asked about like, why does she keep giving you money? He's like, oh, you know, She's my wife, I guess. That's just like a thing. I can read into that as much as I like as well, which is which is fun. Like, why why would she be giving him all of that money? Is there blackmail? Like, what's going on? I guess the, the question I have for you when we're talking about these mirrors and parallels is that the other side of the case is, of course, the police. And we have a big cast of police kind of fronted by Inspector Jap, who's an old friend of Poirot's uh, in I, Scotland I, He's Yard. not even in my list. <laughs> there's, there's a lot. There's a yeah. lot of cops. And I I think that interestingly, like, they lack a lot of parallels and also there's not a a lot of, like, momentum that's sort of being built up behind any narrative thing they're doing other than the the fact that Inspector Chrome doesn't like Poirot. That's (laughs) kind of our main police device. Chrome is really, he's a really fun character because he, he really is, he's filling in the role of incompetent cop but he is established to have solved crimes before he apparently caught some some child killers and he has this whole spiel where he talks about how he he caught this guy by using these modern techniques and they basically just they confess to you right there in the moment with these very fancy things that he's doing and Poirot just kind of says yeah i've i've seen that before and 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 the inspector Krebs says, "Oh, really? Like <laughs> annoyed? Yeah. He's just annoyed that Pyro is like, yeah, like that's not that's not new, mate." I feel like it's almost <laughs> an acknowledgement of something we were talking about with Moriarty last year by Anthony Horowitz, where 
Poirot and Hastings keep talking about the things that are written in detective novels, whereas the police keep talking about the things that happen in actual crimes. Mm-hmm. And it's like fantasy land and the real world crossing over is the main conflict between them. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, those, those conference sequences as well, because they're trying to decide how to deal with the consequences of the killings, mm-hmm. that place where the fantasy rubs up with, with reality, because I, as the reader, am thinking... I'm really excited to get another letter and another kill because then I get more clues. But every single time somebody says, well, we'll just have to wait for the next murder, somebody says, that's really unethical. Yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) that's the thing, right, is that that Poirot and Hastings, when they read the first letter, they say, oh, better watch the news for a robbery, and Poirot goes, I certainly bloody hope so. (laughs) Yeah, I hope it's not anything worse than that. That would be crazy. Although I did find Hastings' response quite funny, where he's like, worse? What do you mean? It's like, Hastings, how many of these bloody novels have you been in, mate? Yeah, how many of them have you written? (laughs) I really enjoy the, honestly, the leaning on the fourth wall that we're getting here. I mean, I'm a sucker for meta fiction. We've established that. Watching them try to decide whether it is ethical to wait for another murder, watching Poirot throw up his hands and say, what am I? The magician, the sorcerer, I cannot produce a solution from hardly any clues. And I think most interestingly, from a practical standpoint, deciding whether or not to make the investigation public is also really interesting because their hand gets forced in the end because once people pick up on, oh, there's been these three kills that all happening around the same time and they seem to be killed in the same way or whatever. There's even a note, Betty, the second victim, was like picked because she was pretty enough that it would make the news. Yes, that is. it is something that has been mentioned about both of the female kills we've had so far. It, it is interesting, I guess. I, I do wonder, because there's, there's a lot of context around the characters given to us and like their relationships, but you do have to wonder how much of it is going to factor in at that point. Because, of course, the, the other clue, which is the last thing I'll kind of close off, and a, a huge part of this novel before we get into the mystery section, is that the victims, all of them have alliterative names. Yes. It was Alice Asher, Betty Barnard, and Carmichael Clark. The trouble that they run into is, for example, they go to try and stop Betty being murdered, but because they're searching the town that the letters that they receive for people named BB, they miss Elizabeth Barnard because Betty is her nickname. And the kills also become more difficult to intercept because the the first kill happens at like 5.30 in the evening or 6 or something, and then the next kill is between midnight and 1am. And then the third one, Poirot gets the letter too late. Yeah, he's like, oh wait, it's the 30th and we've received the letter today and that's when the killing is going to happen and oh dear, there's been some sort of mix up. Like clearly this... This, this wasn't part of the killer's plan, which is really interesting. We will come back to those little mysteries, though, at the end of the show today. You're listening to Death of the Reno. We're discussing the ABC murders by Dame Agatha Christie. Woo. This is 2SER 107.3. Stick around. Dame! You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. Now, with such a thriving scene of local Australian authors, there's a little chance we could resist having our next guest, Danuka McKenzie, on. She's the author of the Kate Miles murder mystery series, starting with The Torrent, which was one of our honourable recommendations in 2022. And she has just released the third book in that series, Tipping Point. Danuka, 
Welcome to Death of the Reader. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Danuka, Murder Mystery is all about the little details and as a finely tuned clue hunting mind, some details in your book suck out more than others. In particular, the brain... Uh, in particular, the brand trademarked nods to Cornetto, Bluey, and Lego during Kate's scenes with her family. They've needled their way into my brain, and I need to know how you thought you could get away with this almost product placement? That's hilarious. Uh, I did not think it was placement, but I think, you know, it's always good. What I love about culture-specific details that kind of sets the book in, in a particular time, place, and a particular, you know, place in terms of country and, and culture. And I think they're good. You know, they're little kind of Easter eggs for the people who know, they know. I mean, if anyone wants to pay me for that very subtle, you know, uh, product placement, I would not be saying no to that. But, no, that was not, <laughs> that wasn't, you know, I don't have any, uh, you know, agreements with any companies to subtly add little plugs <laughs> for their products in my book. <laughs> I'm excited to hear this interview played in a court case in the future. Um, I I feel like this. I feel like the sequences with Kate's family kind of stick out because they are sort of sparse moments of joy in her life as presented in the book. How have you sort of pushed into these spaces narratively with the ongoing police investigation that Kate becomes personally embroiled in once again? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's always been what the audience has really loved about the series right from the start is the fact that there is that focus on her family and it is very much a book that her family uh, side of, you know, her life is very much goes hand in hand with her investigation side of, you know, her work. So that both those sides are explored in, you know, all three of the books. I would say sort of this one um, in Tipping Point is probably the the book that has maybe the least amount of those scenes. I mean, I think the first two books very much focused on the, you know, the pregnancy and, and new motherhood and, and that kind of thing. Um, this still has that central tension, which is always for Kate, the, you know, the thing that she really loves, which is her job and the thing that she's really good at is what puts her into conflict with the needs of her family. And that, that tension runs through all three books. But in this book, it, it kind of, I broadened that to be sort of her broader family. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, not her kids um, and her husband, but her, you know, her sibling, um, who is very much at the centre of this novel. The loyalty between police force and family is very much put to the test in this one. Yeah. I mean, I, I am very interested in that relationship with Luke, the, the estranged brother who's come back into the story, I guess. The the thing that I was most interested in with their with their relationship is obviously he becomes part of the the murder investigation, and so there are all of these scenes where it it sh like in theory in a perfect world it should be loose come home and we've got a new dad now and we're like a big happy family but because of the suspicion um, and Luke's like bad actions which we'll, we'll get into. Um, they they can't quite keep that peace going for very long. I think that that's why those trademarked moments kind of settle with me is because they are they are so sparse. I guess maybe that's a side effect of you trying to sort of broaden the novel, as you say. Yeah, and and I think those moments are important because I think you know, like Kate's family is you know that's a very integral part of her, and you know she absolutely adores her two kids and you know they're a very important um, part of a family and I also wanted to show 
realistically what that would mean for her small family. And like in in this book, for example, you have her her young um, son, you know, who is about to go to school next year. Um, you know, he is suffering from anxiety because he can feel that the family has gone through quite a few things and he is unsettled in his own life. You know, the, the impact of that, if she has to manage now an anxious child, what that means for him starting school um, and things like that. So which which are very kind of, I think, very relatable things for other parents. They, and they can process that stress in different ways and they and, and that can come out as kind of playing up or, or kind of being really rigid with their routine and, and things like that. So I think they're very relatable things. And I just wanted to show that, you know, like just as much as Kate is struggling with, you know, the aftermath of various things that have happened, um, so is her family. Yeah, because I think one of the really interesting things, particularly about Luke's role in that, is that with a kid going to school while Luke's life is kind of spiraling out of control, not even entirely outside of his own design, you sort of have this like sympathetic dirtbag character who's part of the family that Kate is also at some level worried about the influence that that has. Um, I guess what was it like writing Luke so on the page this time when he's largely been, you know, a background hurdle for Kate in the previous books? Yeah, it's true because, I mean, he was very much only really referred to in the last um, books. And I think I think maybe in the torrent I think they have a phone conversation, but that's really about it. To kind of signal to the reader, hey, this book is not specifically going to be about Kate's kind of struggles as a mother. It's going to be broadening. And, and a way of signaling that to the reader was, you know, getting Luke right up front. I think he's the first chapter after the very brief kind of prologue. So, you know, so you're immediately going into a Kate novel kind of um, knowing that it's it's going to be a slightly different take. And what I was really interested in doing there is exploring that sibling relationship because, you know, for the first time, Kate is on the other side of a crime where, you know, a person she, that she loves and that she um you know, think she knows um, is getting accused of, of something. You know, that was an interesting position for me to put Kate in and I wanted to explore that with her. And that that allowed me to look at sort of the idea around, well, what do you do when a person you love is accused of something because that love doesn't kind of disappear. You suddenly have to take this new piece of information and incorporate it with, you know, what you thought you knew about that person and and try and recalibrate like what you knew and and having to deal with that so i wanted to see how that played out um for the family well it does it does make me wonder after three novels of getting your family's name thrown about in the media uh how much more kate and her family can take before the point tips over so to speak benjamin stevenson once brought to my attention that writing a sequel is admitting that you've been reduced to imitating yourself do you have one tip to keep things fresh in the writing room? Tanuka, go. The thing with sequels is you got to keep within the rules of the universe that you've created, but you've got to find something fresh within that universe. So you can't say the exact same thing. And that's why, like, for example, with Tipping Point, I really wanted to kind of stretch Kate away from, you know, the, the, the major themes of motherhood, which I felt like I have sufficiently looked at in the previous two books. In reality, I think there is a... Um, like there is an end point for series, you know, because I think it become there comes a point, and I think there's a natural end point because there comes a point where people just don't believe that that many bad things will be happening to one person, and 
you know, one town. And so so I think there is an actual endpoint. Whether that has come for Kate, who knows? Just as much, just as much in your hands as it is in the publishers. Daduka, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's always a treat having you on and a massive congrats on the release of Tipping Point. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, lo- I love chatting to you guys. So thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Danuka McKenzie there talking about her latest novel, Tipping Point, the third book in the Detective Kate Miles series. Thank you so much to Harper Collins for putting us in touch with Danuka and providing copies of the book. If you missed our discussion on Death of the Reader Undead, you can also catch that up on the podcast along with the full chat. We're going to jump back over to Agatha Christie's The ABC Murders. It hurts. It's got a little problem to solve. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we're on the trains today, Herds. I've got my ABC Rail Guide, mm-hmm. the alphabetical guide to Britain's railways, because we are, of course, talking about the ABC Murders by Agatha Christie. It's time to file our taxes for the year. The, you know, m- Murder Mystery Tax Man came around That's and true. he said, Sophie Hannah doesn't count. And That's true. we, we said, But Sophie's up. lovely. We love Sophie. We, we, uh, she doesn't count according to Tax Man. He's a, he's a harsh harsh man we have to make up for last year and that's what we're doing if you missed it by the way uh cameron furlong and i our editor-in-chief spoke about sophie hannah's new screen production over on death of the reader undead Ooh. a couple of weeks ago so you can catch that up on the podcast but herds you have three murders to solve oh no okay all right so yeah this is terrifying here's the thing i think the first thing to kind of get out of the way is that this is not a cluey novel in the sense that we do not have locked rooms. No. We do not have a convenient list of suspects. We do not. And I think most tellingly, I'm actually going to pull this up. Hold on. I it's have... not even a closed circle. No, it's not even close to a closed circle, which is a shame, even though that would be alliterative. We're in three um, entire different towns, yeah. all of which are telegraphed to us in advance by our killer by post. Except herds, as you were saying at the end of last section, the third kill, yeah, which arrives late because the name of Poirot's new residency is misspelled. The suspicion from Inspector Chrome is that the person writing the the letter has written the name of their of their drink onto the envelope rather than the actual you know address. Does that sound plausible to you? No, I mean, not the person really. who wrote two letters correctly <laughs> to the same address yeah, I messed it up the third like, time. I don't know why you wouldn't just, if you were planning on doing the ABC murders, why wouldn't you just do all the envelopes at the same time? Maybe even write all the letters at the same time and schedule them. I'm just How saying- How are you supposed to schedule them? I don't know. I think that the delay is intentional, yeah. which is going to be fun. I'm very curious to see in what manner Carmichael Clark has been killed. I mean, and do you, how that do all you works. think there's a link between our three victims other than the alliteration? I do. So here's the thing: this murder, there's lots, there's lots of clues being thrown around, swimming around in my brain. And something that I keep coming back to is that they, they're talking about the the gender of the crime, yep. which is a crazy was a crazy thought. They say it's a man's crime, but it's a woman's thing to write anonymous letters. Which let's not talk about sexism in Christian novels. No, we'll be here all week. Yeah, but <laughs> I will propose to you that <laughs> what are we doing? Come on, I will propose to you. So there's there's quite a few passages in this book that talk about children. 
They talk about the children playing in the streets. Yes. They talk about the schools oh, being no. out you this th- week. Oh, no. They talk about, look, it, it couldn't be someone that the community would recognize doing these kills because they would they would, they would would recognize exactly. them. It, uh, no one but, would blink an eye at a child going into a tobacco <laughs> shop, Ben. Look, I think it's plausible. This is a time when children could run around in the streets and play and be handed lettuce and strawberries and no one would bat an eyeball. <laughs> Specifically lettuce and strawberries? That's what he's been given in the book. Poirot says, Hastings, why did you buy strawberries? It'll ruin your suit if it gets all the juice into your suit out of your pocket. And he says, you're right. And he gives it to a small child. That child is a cold-blooded murderer. It's the irony you see. I they see, They give of him the gift of a blood-red punnet of strawberries uh. when that child is in fact... The killer. Okay. Now you may be wondering how I could am. a how could a child? Uh, this is a foolish thing to be wondering, but get how between could a three child different towns. <laughs> get between three different towns, and also concoct such a, an amazing scheme. I mean, I wouldn't put it past a child to concoct such. The a reality scheme. is, Inspector <laughs> Chrome, who suggests like an amateur. <laughs> That the White Horse Mansion could have been confused with the White Haven drink. Other way around. He's actually three children in a trench coat. Oh no! <laughs> so how can how can how could a child make it between three towns? The answer is he got three different children, one in each town. I see. And this is going to blow your mind. Mm-hmm. It's the ABC murders. You know what children learn? The ABCs. The ABCs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's okay. picking it up. He's picking up what I'm putting down. He knows I've got him cornered. It's true. And I'm so excited for Christy to have Poirot say when he <laughs> solves the crime that it was like taking candy from three babies. Well, only Texas would would commit these three children to jail anyway. So they're probably going to make it away scot-free. Yeah. That's why it's one of those infamous, you know, Christy books. Okay, but all this aside, <laughs> you still haven't actually established a motive here. And so the, the motive the, is- Hold on. The other what? thing I, I need to ask you- Man doesn't want let me talk. Chrome solved a series of child murders, and that's these were the children that were murdered. Oh, I see. They or actually killed been. him. Yeah, in a shooter's position. That I makes see. sense to me. That works. <laughs> I just want to know how you think what Hastings and Poirot have said is their ideal crime here intertwines with what these three <laughs> children are up to. So here's the thing. All of those things that Hastings said as he's like, I want the pretty girl, and I want the discharged gameskeepers and the poison, but not to be too technical. All rubbish. All rubbish. Because Poirot- Christy just put it in for a distraction. Well, no, it's not a distraction. It's a setup. Poirot's response, Uh where it says that he would like a very simple crime, a crime with no complications, a crime of quiet domestic life, which would involve children. Very unimpassioned. He talks about these people playing cards together, and maybe one of of the people playing cards gets up while everyone else is engrossed in the game and kills the guy by the fireplace. I would say that these children are just playing a game. Yep. That's the connection. Also, I would like to point out that all the people that have been killed so far have been in bad relationships, Mm -hmm. possibly producing bad households. I see. And yeah, this is the the children children getting back at bad families. They're getting back at their bad parents because Poirot says in his psychological analysis that the culprit that he's looking for as a child- grew up with a lack of attention and is now seeking it. Mm -hmm. So clearly the children are playing some kind of murder game. 
get back at the bad parents that never gave them the attention they deserved. Why are they killing the non-abusive spouses? I will never know, but (laughs) (laughs) clearly it's all part of the game. I'm starting to feel like your four children in a trench coat theory or (laughs) three three children. children, Three three children. children. There's three towns. It's going to be one child per town and they're all banded together to impersonate Mm -hmm. a child murder solver in order to murder bad parents. I see. That makes sense to me. Does that not make sense to you? I don't think there's any holes. <sighs> it's it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. It's excellent. Come on. There's foreshadowing. All righty. Well, Herds, I'm proud of you for your efforts today. <laughs> I'm going to go home and weep. <laughs> if you had to pick a second most likely culprit after three people in a trench coat, <laughs> Who who do you think it's going to be? I still like Chrome. I like the idea that he's throwing off the case by being like, oh, it must have been a simple misunderstanding. Even though he has no mirror and that <sighs> Knox would be very disappointed in you for he would suggesting. Have no Maybe we just haven't met his mirror yet. I am conscious of the fact that we haven't actually seen Carmichael Clark's crime scene yet. So That's true. I feel like you're holding something from me there, but we will <laughs> find what you, out. What do you mean, Herds? You couldn't possibly be suggesting that in this novel where Poirot and Hastings wish for a rich man who would make the papers to be murdered <laughs> that Carmichael Clark could be important in any way, could you? Are you telling me that he's the... Oh, God. Are you telling me he's the, the leaf in the forest, so to speak? I guess we'll see. I guess we'll figure that one out. Butterfly flaps its wings. Poirot is a hurricane. It would be fun if, like... There are three killings, but only one of them is like the intended target. Like it's a smoke screen. I guess we'll see. I guess I we'll guess see we how will. we go. I guess we will. Hurricane Hercule definitely would be a good wrestling name for Poirot. You're listening to <laughs> Death of the Reader. This is your murder mystery world tour. We are talking Agatha Christie's The ABC Murders. And next week on the show, Herds, you are going to be reading up to and including chapter 27, The Woo! Doncaster Murder. That sounds like it's really far in. It's not that far in. Doncaster. Oh, no, there is a D. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Murder number four. Yeah. There's lots of notes. Wait. Note not from Mr. Hastings. Sorry, not. It's not notes from Hastings. It's not from Hastings. It's not from Hastings. Good to know. All right. I'm ready for it. This is Death of the Reader. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. See you with the ABC Murders next week on the show. Catch you then. We're out of here. Woo!